0: Welcome back to The Francisca Show, where we encourage fellow artists and entrepreneurs to collaborate and support each other while sharing their stories. I'm Francisca, a singer, composer, and also your host. On the show today, we have with us Ruchi Koval, the Associate Director of Congregation JFX, a cure of community in Cleveland, and she's also a public speaker, musician, author, and blogger. We're so happy to have you. You are our first writer-blogger on the show, and just before we start, I want to tell everyone you asked me why are we talking on the show if musician is not your primary thing, and the reason is you have to deal with lots of the challenges and obstacles that musicians and artists and film and theater and dancers have to deal with, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So let's start with just telling me who did you want to be when you grow up and what were your aspirations?
1: When I was three years old, I wanted to be a nurse. That was my first career aspiration. I really liked the uniform. Um, But when I was growing up, people always would tell me that I should be a teacher. Um, I liked to help my classmates with their schoolwork. I really enjoyed the thrill of explaining things and seeing that spark of connection in another person's eyes. It felt really, really good. But I was not very mature and I thought that a teacher was a limiting profession. I didn't really understand the power of a teacher, but I also sort of resisted it from a girl power perspective. Like a girl doesn't have to be a teacher. A girl can be anything. I can be a lawyer. I can be a therapist. I can be an actress. I can be a musician. I can be anything I want to be. The irony is that as I continued through my career path, first working in publishing while living in Israel, and I actually considered opening a magazine with a friend, starting a magazine company, but ultimately I did find myself squarely back in the realm of education. And the truth is everything I do from writing, speaking, teaching in my own community, blogging, videoing, blogging, whatever they call it. It really all goes back to teaching and it's, it's education. That's what it is. And it all goes back to using my words to effectively connect to another person, whether in a large scale or a small scale. And just as I found that thrilling as a child, I still find it thrilling today.
0: No, it's true. I find like people who ask questions, that's because that's their challenging part. And the fact that you didn't want to go into teaching showed that you had some sort of calling to do that.
1: Mm-hmm. whether
0: you want it to be called that or not.
1: So well, just going back to the teaching piece for a minute, I think that when people said growing up that I should be a teacher, I had exactly one vision of what that is. And that means me being like a lot of Orthodox girls and standing in a classroom in a Jewish day school, and which is beautiful. I mean, I just had parent-teacher conferences last night. I'm so grateful to my kids' teachers who are doing exactly that and who are changing her life. Um, But I do find it thrilling that now with technology, and I have fully embraced technology, I I love it. I find it really, really cool and exciting that teaching can be done in so many different modalities. And and that's really cool.
0: So how did you go from publishing into coaching, parenting coaching?
1: The truth is that when I was 23 years old, my husband had his first rabbinical position in Buffalo Grove, Illinois. And I I was sort of de facto catapulted into the role of rabbin, which I was sort of like the unrebitson I was like I'm not a rabbitson you guys I'm just me um, but these teenagers these like they, they were like hey rabbitson and I, I learned to say yes so I was actually there were people in the community who wanted parenting classes. I was a mother of three little kids and for some reason I agreed to teach parenting classes I'm not really sure why anybody listened to me but as the second of seven kids and my mother raised us with so much wisdom, she became a social worker as we were growing up, so she had a very progressive view of listening and validating and supporting kids. I did teach parenting classes. I used Miriam Adahan's book and I used what I had learned from my mother, and I sort of learned as I taught. As I got older and I started going through some of my own parenting challenges with older kids, I really was forced to do a lot of learning about parenting in my own way, as in my own personal journey. And I did find that people were increasingly turning to me, people whose kids were not as old as mine, to share what I had learned. And it was actually one woman in my community who said, you should really be a parenting coach. So I went for the training and I got myself trained. But the truth is most of what I learned is in the university of life. And I devour books, I listen to podcasts, I go to classes, I'm a I'm a perpetual learner. And so it is very, very exciting that I can do this. I started a Facebook group called PRA, Parenting with Radical Acceptance. It's something I feel very passionate about. And so now I do parent coaching informally through my Facebook medium as well.
0: Wow, you really have taken over the online world, and you do teach via every medium, including writing and speaking. Could you tell me what came first and how it evolved? Yeah.
1: So the first platform I joined was Facebook, um, which was probably the first major social media platform out there. So the irony is that my husband was the first one to join Facebook. And I remember talking to people through his Facebook account. I do not really know how Facebook worked. And then I decided to open my own account. And then lo and behold, I am like on Facebook about 1000 times more than he is. <laughs> but I started like they used to call social media microblogging. So if there was like an issue in the community, I would find myself on people's pages, writing Facebook comments, having these high level conversations with strangers. And I, I found it really exciting. Now, I had always loved to write. I loved English class. I loved writing essays. It was something that I felt strong about, but um, this was something new. This was interacting with real people in real time over issues I felt passionate about. Um, And the immediacy of the internet was what was so exciting. And after I would write like a little comment on someone's Facebook page and I would hit, you know, enter, I would look at it and I would be like, okay, this is thrilling because that came out of my fingertips exactly the way I hoped. It would. And if it didn't, you could always just go back and edit it in real time. And that's what was for that's what first gave me the idea to start a blog. That maybe I could do that on a larger scale and instead of discuss discussing things on other people's walls or whatever they called it back in the day, I could discuss it on my own forum. Even today, I still struggle with whether I would rather publish things on my own forum, like by having my own podcast, having my own blog or if I want the legitimacy and the larger platform of publishing things on other people's blogs or other people's platforms. Like there's a website called torahanytime.com. You can go on there. There's thousands of classes on Torah content, Hebrew, English, Yiddish, anything. I've tried to get myself on that forum and they don't, respond to my emails. <clears throat> and then a part of me is like, well, just do it your own way. Just podcast on your own podcast. Like, why do you need them? Why do you need that? But I think that artists of any form really want sort of the larger legitimacy. But by the same token, we don't want to be limited by some what somebody else wants us to write. We don't want to have to be somebody else's mouthpiece. So you can't have the independence and the autonomy while also having somebody else's platform and reach. It doesn't go both ways.
0: It's true. And then how did it evolve into speaking? So you started speaking engagements. I know you went to Baltimore and Philadelphia and other communities.
1: Yes. So the public speaking thing sort of was emerging as the same time as the writing. Um, And there are some people who are public speakers who are not writers and vice versa. I happen to really love both. But how it started was that I was counseling an individual woman in my own community who was going through a hard time. I was just sharing with her some of the Torah wisdom on the struggle that she was having. And she gave me this look at one point and she was like, Ruchi, nobody knows that the Torah has wisdom on this stuff. You need to have a bigger mouthpiece. Now, nobody had ever told me I needed a bigger mouth before, so that was very exciting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but she hosted a federation event that she set up for the express purpose of having me be their speaker. And that was my first public speaking gig. There were like 300 people there, most of whom I didn't know. I don't have like your typical stage fright, but I was nervous speaking in front of such a large and anonymous crowd. Um, I also felt like it was a very precipitous moment because I sort of felt like The legitimacy of Torah was hanging on this one talk, which is a little arrogant, but I sort of felt that kind of pressure. I wrote out every word that I was going to say. I practiced in front of my mirror three times while timing myself with a stopwatch. It took me hours to prepare and organize my content and in the end, thank God it was it was successful. I'm sure if I looked at a video of that, I would critique myself in a thousand ways. It did accomplish what I hoped it would, which was really to show, it wasn't about establishing myself as a public speaker. It was more about showing people that Judaism has wisdom in areas that you may not have guessed. And that was really exciting. And then it sort of moved on from there. Friends of mine who lived in other cities would ask me to come and speak if they had some kind of event. And then a couple years ago, the Jewish Women's Renaissance Project, which is an organization based in Washington, D.C., that brings moms to Israel, tapped me. It was an organization I had been involved with in a smaller capacity. They tapped me to be one of their main educators on their trips. And that was really a turning point for me as a public speaker, because again, it gave me, it conferred legitimacy on me as a, as a public speaker. They also gave me some professional training in public speaking, which was not something I had previously done. I, I love that kind of professional development. I love when you take a talent that you have and then you pair it with professional training, and the result is extremely exciting and then once I started doing these trips, there were women from all over the world on the trips, and then they started inviting me to come to their communities, and that's sort of how that whole thing mushroomed and it was it was really cool. I just got invited to speak to to speak in Sydney, Australia, which I'm hoping will happen this summer. I got invited to speak to me in in Milan, Italy, which I had to turn down unfortunately. But when, you know, when you get invitations like that, it's very exciting as a professional.
0: I'm sure it is. And you must have to deal with the challenges that uh, artists and performing artists, since that is your form of performing. How do you deal with the logistical part of it, negotiating the rate that works for you, that encompasses valuing your time, especially when you have to leave your family and your children? How the art of negotiation, feeling like, you're getting paid for your time and being valued for what you do. So can you tell us a little bit about that journey?
1: The first thing I would say just on a practical level is that people who are new in the field, and particularly women, need coaching from on this point, which I was fortunate to receive. Because in the beginning, you really have to keep your rates very, very low. I mean, in the beginning, you really have to perform for free. You know, you have artists who are trying to break in. What do they do? They take little gigs in little places and they perform, you know, for very low fee, if at all, because they just want to get their name out there. They just want to get their content out there. But then the time comes when you have to up the ante. And the truth is there is no rigid algorithm for doing that. It's really just a matter of trial and error in your field, figuring out what people are willing to pay. It's just a supply and demand issue. Now, on the one hand, in the Jewish speaking market, women are rarer than men because women are less likely to... There's a lot of reasons. It's complicated. But the most practical reason is that women are less likely to leave their families. But by the same token, women in general are much less likely to demand the fees that they're worth. Women are much likely to give their their products away for free or at a reduced rate for whatever reason, especially if they're in a helping profession, if there's no supervision. We want to do good in the universe. We want to share what we've got. We're, we, we have to be, I mean, Sheryl Sandberg writes about this in her book, Lean In. It's not limited to artists. It's not limited to Jewish women. We have to learn how to demand, and I don't mean that in a rude way, I mean that in an assertive professional way, the fees that are A, fair to our market, whether it's a man or a woman, there is no reason that a man should get paid more for public speaking than a woman. If anything, the cost to her family is higher. Secondly, women have to be willing to ask for what what the cost is to them in terms of what they're leaving. I'm not just leaving my family. My husband and I run a congregation here at home, so there's a price, a cost to my home organization when I leave, just in a practical sense. If I go away for Shabbos to speak at a tone, my whole family is going to have a cost. I practically, I teach a partial class in my congregation. We are now going to have to hire a substitute to replace me. So these are very real costs, both in money and emotionality. I have learned, this has been a learned process, to just say my fee without apologetics Without backpedaling, this is what I'm worth. I mean, whether wherever a person is in their professional journey, however established they are, they have to figure out what that fee is. But once they've figured it out, they have to just say, my fee is X for X, Y, and Z plus travel expenses. And then you just shut up and you wait for the other person to decide if they can pay for that or if they can't pay for that. In the back of your mind, you might have a number that you're willing to go down a certain amount or not. But that's it. And then you really just have to be confident in your own fee structure.
0: And how long would you say it took you to get to a place where you could charge the amount you see fit? Transitioning from the time when you're doing it for free or close to free.
1: For me, I would say five years. But I would also add that it really depends on how long it takes somebody to be considered established in the business. I, I I turn down a lot of speaking engagements because I don't like to be away from my family. I don't like to be away from my family for Shabbos at all. So I actually price that very, I price that much higher. So I'm saying somebody else in a different stage of life or in a different, a different type of art might find themselves to be an established artist sooner than that. I, I was also balancing public speaking with a lot of other things. So it wasn't my only focus. Another person might find that they... If you're really, really ambitious and you really put all of your energies into your art form, it could certainly be faster than that, especially if you invest in business coaching to teach you how to do these things instead of trying to do them on your own. And
0: those are great tips and information. Just have a realistic approach and expectations for anyone listening here. So- yeah, and
1: I would also really encourage, like what Cheryl Sandberg says in her book about mentoring. I have a mentor, a woman who is ahead of me in the public speaking business, and she, she's always telling me, be confident in your fees. Women are so needed out there. There's not that many of us. I think mentoring is priceless.
0: I know you, uh, I think it was a recent piece that you published on your blog about your, uh, a mentor that you have that, and, and after she gave you unsolicited criticism, you feel like you've lost her forever. Is this the same mentor?
1: No, this is a new one. (laughs) Maybe she replaced the old one. I didn't think of that.
0: (laughs) That's so interesting.
1: But it's totally different. The first mentor was more um, a mentor that I had in my young adulthood. And it was more about me as a human being. This is specifically a mentor for this industry.
0: Which is very much needed. And I'm sure you'd be a great mentor for other women aspiring speakers and women in other industries as well
1: thank you I do have women calling me sometimes to ask me and um, you know sometimes I'm more honest than others it really depends on how much honesty I think they want um, in terms of you know helping women move from amateur to professional but it I love helping other women it's part of I, I feel like it's part of my calling
0: So you do have a music background. You've been in a band for five years. And uh, so if you did have any advice for an aspiring musician or someone who's amateur wants to move into the more professional fields, let's say someone sings or plays an instrument, what would be some of your mentorship advice?
1: So it's so ironic that I still don't consider myself a professional musician, which is it's such an imposter syndrome thing. Imposter syndrome, for those of you who are not familiar, it's like where people who are successful, especially women, sort of have this impression that they're not really real. Like, well, I'm not really an established speaker. Other people are. I'm not really a professional musician. Other people are. I don't really know what I'm doing. Yeah, it's true. I published a book, but not like the way other people published a book. It's sort of this like self-doubt thing. So in some piece of my mind, I don't really consider myself a professional musician, even though the definition of professional musician is that people pay you to play music, which is certainly true. People have paid to see me in concert. People hire me to play music. I don't do it so much right now. but So in terms of mentorship as a professional musician, I still sort of consider myself an amateur because the women that I was in a band with were professionally conservatory trained degreed musicians. They have degrees in opera and degrees in music theory. And I don't have any of that. I started taking piano when I was six years old. I took lessons for like 11 years. I always played as much as I could. I barely read sheet music. I do almost everything by ear. Um, singing also love to sing, never had professional training. I'm not a professional singer by any stretch of the imagination. Um, Guitar. I started taking guitar this year because I always wanted an instrument that was portable. My two sons play the guitar and I love the way it sounds. But I quit guitar because my fingers were hurting. I know that sounds really lame, but that's the truth. And so in terms of mentorship with music, the only thing I could offer, which is not something I have done, is if you really are interested in making it your focus, you have to go from talent to professional training. Exactly what I said about public speaking or writing. Right now, I'm writing a book about how to write better, two different books about public speaking, and another book about how to get your book published, because I wrote a second book, and I'm ha- I'm trying to get it published right now. So there's no end to the learning curve, even in your field of established professionalism. So if somebody wants to become a professional musician, the first thing you have to decide is, do I really want to become a professional musician? Because if you do, then there are certain choices you're going to have to make in terms of prioritizing. If that's important to you, then you're going to have to spend money on it and you're going to have to spend time on it. And I would just say invest in professional training, professional coaching, professional mentoring, have somebody who really knows what the industry is about, give you wisdom on what you can do better.
0: That's fascinating. And you bring me into the next question, which is you you do so many different things you have a podcast your column your blog your speaking engagements sorry your speaking engagements and your your you published one book and now you're publishing all these other pieces of work how do you possibly answer the question what do you do when you meet someone
1: <laughs> right. right so it's not easy um I'm like, how much time do you have? But, you know, then there's like these forms you fill out and they have a very short space for occupation. So I have, with a lot of thought, decided that the short answer to that question is Jewish educator. But it really depends where I am, because like yesterday I was at an interview at my son's high school Um, it's a public school and they were telling me they have this special program and they were telling me that they sometimes bring in speakers. So I said to her, you know, I'm a motivational speaker. Please consider myself at your disposal. I'm happy to help. So in in that arena, I'm not going to call it a Jewish educator. I'm going to call it a motivational speaker. You know, in some cases I'll say I'm a published author. People don't really consider author to be a profession. So my typical umbrella that I use to put all my stuff under is going to be Jewish educator because I feel like whatever medium I use to educate, whether it's the written word, whether it's a video, whether it's a podcast, whether it's in person, whether it's role modeling, whether it's counseling, it all really fits under the umbrella of Jewish educator. So that, that after grappling is the short answer that I've come up with that I feel good about.
0: You know what? Thank you for acknowledging that this is a hard question for women like us who really are involved in every little detail and aspect of the career we, we built for ourselves. That does make us do 5 million different things. And yeah.
1: And I mean, truthfully, I think a lot of times we think, oh, that's not a real job or that's not a real job. Or sometimes we even feel guilty that we have so many different things that are pulling at our attention. I know I do. I feel like sometimes I feel like um, there was actually a really interesting podcast about this by Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, it's called the, the, the path of the butterfly or the hummingbird. That's what it was. It was something about the hummingbird, about how some people sort of seem to flit from flower to flower to flower, like a hummingbird and, Some people think there's something broken about that model. Like I should really just settle down and find my thing and stick with it. But I was really encouraged by that podcast and it doesn't have to be that way. You know what? God made me with many, many, many different interests and I'm so grateful. There are so many things I love to do and some of them I've been blessed to do well. And so why can't I, I can't do them all and I certainly can't do them all at the same time. But to the degree that I can, I am going to flit from one flower to another because I love them all. So I, I think I've had to journey from a place of sort of feeling like, like that was an immature model to growing comfortable with that model and putting it all under one umbrella so that I myself feel a strong sense of legitimacy and that all of them are legitimate ways to express myself.
0: I agree, the word legitimate is so crucial here and so many women really crave that. Mm -hmm. So what would you say your messages are as as a speaker? You, You create so much content, so clearly you have certain messages that you're passionate about and you'd like to break through to your audience.
1: Yes, if I could sort of isolate the overarching messages that I try to give over, number one, I really try to empower every person listening to me that you have a unique and beautiful soul that nobody else has. And you have things to accomplish in this universe that nobody else can accomplish. So that I think there are a lot of people who feel hopeless and there are a lot of people who feel worthless especially in our image-driven age of social media fake perfection. Some people really don't feel like they're doing much or accomplishing much, and I really try to give over that message from a spiritual perspective. You are worthy. You are beautiful. You are seen. You are loved. You are necessary. That's really a big message that I try to give forth. Another message that I try to give forth at the same time, and this almost seems like a contradictory message... But if the first message is, you are beautiful, you are worthy, love yourself exactly the way you are, the second message would be, you are worth investing in. And so develop yourself into the best you. There's so much that we can be and there's so much that we can do. There are so many forces that distract us from being our best selves, whether they're people or temptations or time sucks or all the things that pull us away, but that you can be so much and do so much and that... You can push yourself out of your comfort zone to develop that. Those are probably really the two main messages that I try to impart. And I would say as a PS, and maybe this is not a PS, I also really try to share my own personal journey in those areas and acknowledge that it's not like I have it all figured out. It's not like I know all the answers. It's not like I haven't made some significant mistakes I too am on this journey. I too am on this path. I'm not talking at you from some pedestal. I say on my Israel trips, I don't want to be the sage on the stage. I want to be the guide on the side. That's not a line that I made up, but it's an educational statement and I, and I love it so that I am with you in the journey. I may have learned certain things that you have not yet learned, but you also have wisdom that I don't have. We can learn from one another.
0: That's really beautiful. I love those messages. I feel like a lot of them align with anyone who practices yoga or anyone who practices any mindful or conscious Mm -hmm. living.
1: Yeah, very much so. And I, I discovered yoga like a year and a half ago. And I felt like I was the first person to discover America. I'm like, Oh, my gosh, everybody yoga. And they're like, Hey, where have you been?
0: (laughs) I think we all feel like that. Eddie sage wisdom I'm sure your parenting advice and outlook has changed with the years is there some something that you feel like you've learned from your personal experiences that you feel I you know we spoke a lot about validation and love and developing yourself that both for parenting and for coaching if if there was you know one thing you'd like to share about how being a parent changed you or what you've learned
1: yeah Um, I would say the main way that parenting has changed me is that, you know, I started out my parenting journey as a very ambitious, confident parent. And that's a good thing. I mean, it's better than being defeated and discouraged, but I did have a certain immature sense of power and control. You know, you have this little baby, they're super duper cute, And you dress them in cute clothes and you do whatever you can. You you do start to have this gnawing sense that you don't really have control because they don't necessarily sleep when you want them to sleep and they don't necessarily eat what or when or how you want them to eat. Uh, There are constant messes. And, you know, so you do have this niggling sense. But then as they get older, that sense just grows. And I think that for me, it has been an extremely humbling journey that raising children is not about molding somebody over in your image. Rather, it is about yourself becoming molded and changed via the journey of your kids. And I mean, there's so much to say and not enough time to say it. But if I had to summarize the journey, I would say that our children are put in our lives. This is, you know, from a Jewish perspective, our children are put in our lives in order to help us travel on our soul's journey and whatever the joys and the pleasures and the challenges and the struggles that we're going to have in the, in that journey is for our benefit. And specifically when people come across difficulties in their parenting journey, and I'm not talking about the normal difficulties of like potty training or sleep training or things like that. I'm talking about things that are perhaps a little more serious difficulties um, learning disabilities, perhaps physical challenges that arise or teenage issues, which can be really, really challenging. The idea really is that the love that a parent is supposed to have for their child has to be primary. And we get sometimes we get so stuck in trying to remain in control and I need to teach them and I need to show them and they will learn and you know using consequences which are a necessary part of parenting but using them as a power tool that we forget about the love and we forget about love bombing our kid and that it's not easy to be a kid it's not easy to grow up and especially if you do have if the child does have challenges it becomes only more and more necessary for the parent to be their greatest advocate their greatest cheerleader and their greatest support I think a lot of that gets lost in the difficulties, and that's my my biggest parenting passion today.
0: That's really deep. I feel like I'll have to re-listen to this again and again to really get this gem of information. Thank Hmm. you so much for sharing that. And on the topic of children and family, a surprise to you all, to our listeners. We do share mutual, for me, it's great-great-grandparents, and for you, it's great-grandparents, Yes. We have a question from the audience. Someone requested you share a memory or a story about our mutual ancestors.
1: Absolutely. So uh, my great-grandparents, we used to call them Bobby Up and Zaidi Up. Their names were Yehuda Tzvi and Esther Hinda Heimowitz. And so my great-grandfather passed away before I was born But my great-grandmother, I remember her clearly. She passed away when I was in seventh grade. And we used to go visit my grandparents in the Bronx, my my grandfather, Rib Shalom Haimowitz, and his wife, Yubadallah Chaim, Nachi Haimowitz, who is, thank God, still alive. My daughter just went to visit her a couple days ago. Um, My grandfather was such a special man. I, I still have a hard time talking about him without getting emotional because I miss him so much. And he, parenthetically, was also musical and talented, and he loved to write. He always used to write us poems when we had an anniversary, not an anniversary in those years, but a a birthday and a graduation, or even even into the anniversaries that I had after I got married. So I like to think that perhaps some of our shared musical talent and our artistry definitely comes from that side of the family. Um, But I remember being a little girl, driving from Cleveland to the Bronx to visit my grandparents, driving up to their checkerboard, uh, garage door <laughs> and going upstairs, my grandmother would give us uh, sugar cookies. And then we would go upstairs to Bobby up as we called her for a honey cookie. So we, we got a lot of cookies. <laughs> and in, in later years, my grandfather used to bake his own cookies. He called them Zaidi cookies. He would, cause we, we called the other cookies, Bobby cookies. Um, and my kids loved those Zaidi cookies. He used to bake oatmeal cookies and create icing on them. And he would decorate them for the occasion. When he came to visit my parents much later in Lakewood, he would hide them in the freezer and my kids would always, well, the confessions are out. They would hide them and steal them because they were so good. <laughs> but I just remember my great-grandmother, Esther Hindaimowicz, Bobby Up, just, she was like, and again, I was very young. She She passed away when I was only like 12 years old, 13 years old. But I remember her being a very strong person, like a in a good way, like sort of a bulwark of strength. Like you got the feeling that her values were immutable and that this was not somebody who was wishy-washy in any way. It was a solidity that I found as a child comforting. That's the word. And even having the privilege to know a great grandmother and to, even in my mind, I can think about her. My own daughter is named after her and I can tell her stories about her you know, I'm very blessed. My grandfather got married very young. My mother got married very young. I got married very young. So my children, my oldest daughter is 24 years old and she still has great grandparents. That's an unbelievable gift. And so I'm so grateful for those memories. I'm so grateful for this amazing
0: family. That's beautiful. I have a sister, Hinda, as well. Yeah, so thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for inspiring so many women and really educating and bringing the world and Judaism down to practical and manageable principles and ideas. Check out Ruchi's blog called outoftheorthobox.com. There's a tab there to buy Ruchi's book. It's also available on Amazon by searching Conversations with God by Ruchi Kovel. And she's currently looking for a publisher to publish her new book. Ruchi also has a podcast that is available on the blog, also on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, just by searching Ruchi Kovel. Make sure to follow her on Facebook and Instagram. And if you have been enjoying this podcast, please make sure to write a review and subscribe and tell your friends to check us out as well. See you next time.